Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded March 15th, 2023. Well, last week, Canada's Ministry of National Defence announced a review of our defence policy. Though only five years into the Liberals' 20-year defence policy update, or DPU, the DOD insists a new DPU is necessary if Canada is to, quote, be ready, resilient, and relevant to meet any threat in this changed global security environment. Dimitri Lascaris is a Montreal-based activist, journalist, and lawyer. He served as justice critic in the shadow cabinets of the Green Party of Canada, and likewise for the Green Party of Quebec. In 2020, Dimitri very nearly became the leader of the Green Party of Canada, finishing second in a tightly contested race with the now-departed Annemie Paul. Dimitri's interviews for TRNN are at therealnews.com, and his articles appear at his website, dimitrilascaris.org, among other places. This Saturday, March 18th, Dimitri will host The Art of Peace, Seeing the World Through the Eyes of Our Enemies. The special webinar is his way of engaging with Canadians before embarking on a mission of peace to Russia next month. Dmitry Lascaris in the first half. And there was a time not so long ago war profiteers were held to be exemplars of humanity's basest instincts, antitheses of virtue, the very worst of the worst of evildoers. They were rightly and roundly despised. Now those CEOs of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics and all their lesser factotums are welcome and well-treated in the halls of power and major media TV studios alike. The Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal is coming soon, and it promises to hold accountable the manufacturers of these weapons that kill combatants and non-combatants alike through the testimony of witnesses to the destruction wrecked and the crimes committed against humanity with them. Brad Wolf is co-founder of the Peace Action Network of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, an affiliate of Peace Action and a partner of World Beyond War. He's a lawyer, former prosecutor, professor, community college dean, and full-time activist for peace and justice, Brad Wolf, and attaching the human cost to the merchants of death in the second half. But first, Dimitri Lascaris and seeing the world and ourselves through the eyes of our enemies. Well, welcome back to the program, Dimitri. Thanks for having me, Chris. Always a pleasure. Well, it's always my pleasure, of course. Now, firstly, uh, Dimitri, how do those wishing to take part in your Saturday webinar art of peace seeing the world through the eyes of our enemies go about that uh well if you go to my twitter profile which is uh, at dimitri lascaris you look on my uh, political page on facebook you can find it. it's pinned to the top of my profile instructions for how to do that it's a webinar there's a link there for registering it'll be held on march 18th 2023 and uh, it'll be about 90 minutes long i intend to say a few comments at the opening and then we want to open it up for general discussion well, and what are, you, what are you hoping to gain from this? This is a pretty risky position, politically speaking. Yes, it is. <laughs> but uh, far riskier, infinitely riskier, is the continuation of this war. And we are not going to bring an end to this war unless we learn how to speak to the people against whom we're waging it. The fact of the matter is, all relevant polling data, uh, we can safely operate on the assumption that a large majority of the Russian population supports both uh, the Putin government and the decision to uh, prosecute this war. And that's just a, that's just a reality, a, ge- a geopolitical reality. Now, we can ignore that to our mutual peril, not just the peril of the Russian people, but to the peril of those of us living in the West, or we can try to understand why and uh, to facilitate a dialogue. Now, as I'll be explaining when we hold this event, 
I'm just one person out of the billions of people whose uh, future is at stake in this war. I might not accomplish anything by going there. I, as I say, as, I, as I've indicated in my commentary on social media about the subject, I've never even been to Russia. I don't speak Russian. Uh, I'm not going there at anybody's expense other than my own. Uh, so I'm just one voice in a sea of voices in this debate. But if I can contribute in any little way to facilitating a dialogue between the peoples of the West and the Russian people so that we can find a peaceful resolution to this conflict, this existentially dangerous conflict, then I'm prepared to do that. And even if I don't accomplish it, I'm not able to make any contribution in terms of facilitating a dialogue. I personally feel it would be of great value to me just so that I can better understand this country uh, and, the, and the people who support the Russian government and what it's uh, attempting to do, do in Ukraine and trying to, uh, you know, in, in my own, for my own personal uh, enrichment, understand their perspective on the world. Yeah, well, we're always told that one person can make a difference. At the very beginning, when I was thinking about doing this, was Tamara Lorenz, who is a Canadian uh, who's pursuing doctoral studies at uh, the Balsillie School. She is an outspoken, passionate, extraordinarily accomplished and principled advocate for peace. Uh, she re recently visited Russia. Uh, I became aware of that and uh, talked to her about her experiences. And after after hearing what she had to say, I was convinced that I too should to make that that journey. And after I made that decision. I began to reach out to some people in Russia through, you know, mutual friends, and uh, I hope to be able to meet with people from the academic academic community in Moscow. There's a couple of people in Crimea that uh, I've been speaking to uh, who are from the West, but who uh, who've lived in Crimea for some time. Other than that, I mean, I really don't know what to expect when I get there, and as I indicated, this is entirely at my own initiative and I'm at, at, at my own expense. Well, when you say that you wonder about, you know, why, why the Russians are so supportive of uh, President Putin, uh, when I'm looking at the Canadian media and talking to people and listening to people in Canada and listen to how supportive they are of the government line as it's fed to us and are uh, lining up four square in support of the Ukraine coup government and all that it does without, it seems, any uh, ken of the history of what's gone on in Ukraine since 2014 and what the government before uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky got in and since have been doing in the east of the country that led uh, people that know realize to this conflict in the first place. It's no surprise to me that, to see that the Russian people surrounded as they are, uh, are in support of the president because what, what else can they do in the situation they're in? It seems an existential crisis for them, something that Canadians perhaps will come to understand better later. Uh, I completely agree with you, Chris, but it goes, I think it goes way back, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the levels of support that uh, Vladimir Putin, Putin has. And let me just say, and I'm sure you know this, you can't have a rational discussion about uh, Vladimir Putin and the government that he leads in this, uh, in our society. It's amazing. You know, the childishness, the stupidity of it, the simplisticness of it, it, it it's frankly sickening. If you, you know, there, there have to be reasons we shouldn't just automatically assume that, you know, some 100 million or 110 million Russians out of a population of 140 million who support him feel that way because they're brainwashed. We have no reason to believe that we are any more in control of the truth here in the West. We are a heavily propagandized society than, than Russia, frankly. And if you look objectively going all the way back to the beginning of the presidency of Vladimir Putin, there are 
perfectly rational explanations for why he enjoys this level of support. And I'm just going to cite, you know, three. And you can go to the, you can go to the statistics published by the World Bank, which is anything but a pro-Russian uh, organization, to uh, confirm what I'm about to say. Uh, when Vladimir Putin took power after a decade of humiliation under the drunken pro-Western incompetent buffoon Boris Yeltsin, who was essentially a lapdog of Bill Clinton uh, and the neoliberals in the Democratic Party, the poverty rate in Russia was 39%. I may be off slightly, but it was approximately, it was almost 40%. By 2021, uh, the poverty rate had plummeted to 12%. When Vladimir Putin took power, the average lifespan of Russians was in, I think it was in the range of 61 or 62 years. It was up around 70 or 69 years at the time that the Soviet Union collapsed. The average lifespan of Russians plummeted during the 90s, the decade of humiliation. Uh, and then by 2021, it had gone from about approximately 61 years up to 72 years. It was higher than it had been uh, at the time that the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, another uh, metric, a third one, which I'll cite to you, Russia was a financial basket case during the Yeltsin years. Uh, you know, it almost went bankrupt. There was a, a financial crisis in the uh, mid to late 90s. Today, even, uh, even after sanctions being imposed upon Russia, which were obviously designed to destroy the Russian economy, Russia has one of the lowest debt to GDP ratios uh, in, of any major economy. It actually has become largely self-sufficient. And it did this under extraordinarily difficult circumstances because of the economic pressures being applied upon it by the West. So when you look at these objective statistics, how can you not understand how somebody who lived through the 1990s in Russia, and I think it's safe to say that most Russians who are living in Russia today had some experience of that terrible decade, how can you question why they might have some respect and admiration for their government? Now, that is not to say that there's nothing to criticize about Russia's government. You can, there's plenty to criticize about Russia's government, just as there's plenty to criticize in any major Western government. But to suggest that there is no reason whatsoever for a substantial proportion of the Russian population to be supportive of its government is to betray an astonishing ignorance of the readily verifiable facts. Well, the economy, the, the Russian economy in the basket case you described uh, during Yeltsin and, and, and that humiliating period is clear to everyone. But if it was just an, a case of economy, uh, this war must be costing Russia a lot. And for people to support the move to go into Ukraine in defense, I still argue, of the East, which is never mentioned here, it's a costly endeavor, and though there's no guarantee that the Western sanctions would lessen any uh, if they hadn't had done this, because uh, the sanction regime has been uh, levied against Russia for quite a long time now, this this is costing the economy quite a lot. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, you know, but at this, uh, and there's there's no question that for uh, the Russian government, I, I believe the last poll I saw from Levado, a Russian polling firm which has been often cited by Western media. Uh, it's a reputable polling firm. The last uh, statistics I saw, and they publish monthly statistics on the approval rating for Vladimir Putin, was up around 80%. Uh, so that would have been, you know, almost a year into what the Russian government describes as a special military operation, an approval rating of 80%. Has the, did the Russian economy contract last year? Yes. I'm sure that was a painful contraction for a lot of Russians. But as contractions go, it was by no means devastating. It was in the range of 2.2%. The IMF just put out 
statistics predicting the IMF, again, anything but a pro-Russian organization, put out its predictions for uh, economic growth in 2023. And it, it predicted that for Russia, there would be very modest economic growth, but it would be growth nonetheless. And by comparison, Russia's performance, if it turns out to be as envisioned by the IMF, will be impressively superior to that of the two or two of the most important economies in Europe, namely Germany, which is predicted to have a lower, uh, virtually no growth at all. And uh, the UK, which is an economic basket case right now and is predicted to suffer a very serious contraction. And by the way, one of the reasons why the UK and Germany, arguably the most important reason why the UK and Germany are going to experience very a very difficult year economically in 2023 is because the sanctions that they have imposed upon Russia and the belligerent posture they've taken towards Russia, which was a major supplier of affordable gas to Europe and particularly to Germany, have exacerbated uh, an inflation crisis. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the statistics, the bankruptcy figures coming out of Western Europe, you look at the job figures that are coming out of Western Europe, you look at the performance of the euro, it is no exaggeration to say that Europe and particularly its economic powerhouse, Germany, are being deindustrialized as a result of this extraordinarily uh, irrational program of sanctions that the West has imposed upon Russia. Yeah, rationality doesn't seem to be really high on the list these days in the West. And uh, we see that the ruble is up and Russia has improved its its alternative uh, markets for its uh, for its energy, especially even after, you know, it must have cost them immensely to lose the Nord Stream pipelines in the way they did in those markets as well. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with Dimitri Lascaris. Dimitri's a Montreal-based activist. He's a journalist and lawyer. He served as justice critic in the shadow cabinets of the Green Party of Canada and likewise the Green Party of Quebec in 2020. Dimitri, very near by a Thimbles Witt became leader of the Green Party of Canada, finishing second in a tightly contested race with the now departed Amy Paul. Um, his interviews were found at TRNN, the realnews.com, and his articles appear at his website, dimitrilascaris.org. We're speaking today extensively around Dimitri's planned visit to Russia. To He'll be holding a webinar explaining that and more, the art of peace, seeing the world through the eyes of our enemies. That will be this Saturday, the 18th of March. What's the time on that again, Dimitri? It's scheduled to be at noon uh, Eastern time, uh, <laughs> 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Greece time, which is where I am currently. Okay, noon Eastern. All right. Well, and you go to dimitrilascaris.org to, to see more. And you mentioned your Twitter handle. Could you reiterate that so that those that use that can uh, uh, zone yes. in on you? Uh, at Dimitri Lascaris. So it's uh, D-I-M-I-T-R-I-L-A-S-C-A-R-S. I watched uh, just recently your interview on activism, The Source. That's a, a, a fellow, uh, Zayn Raza, out of Germany. And in that, uh, and it was a very good interview, uh, the title being the, the reality is Ukraine is losing. You mentioned sanctions earlier. Uh, in that conversation, you talked about sanctions as an act of war. Canada, too, is a participant in sanctions. We often hear in Canada hear about the American sanctions, we less often hear about what Canada is doing um, as well along that line. I've argued for quite a while that we are uh, in a de facto, we've declared war on Russia. Canada has in a de facto manner. Agree with that? Well, 100%, you know, Chris, I mean, you know, 
we we're not only sending massive you know main battle tanks, air defense systems, artillery, ammunition uh, to the Ukrainians. We're training their military forces, including as the Ottawa Citizen reported, uh, I think back in 2019, neo Nazis who have infiltrated the Ukrainian military. NATO is providing real-time battlefield intelligence to the Ukrainian military for the purposes of targeting and killing Russian soldiers uh, and destroying uh, Russian infrastructure. We are imposing sanctions, which, as I mentioned, are designed to destroy the Russian economy. I mean, in what sense are we... Oh, oh and I, I omitted to mention that we are also, if not uh, encouraging, uh, tacitly approving of former members of NATO militaries who are citizens of NATO countries to go over there and fight on the front line alongside Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, so in what sense are we not waging war against nuclear-armed Russia? It's absolutely insane to suggest otherwise. And we're doing this, Chris, we're doing this without having had any kind of a meaningful debate in parliament, in our society, about the wisdom of waging war against Russia, against a state that has more nuclear weapons than any country on earth. Yeah, is that still happening? I know that, uh, and I talked to Ken Stone of the Hamilton Coalition to stop war, uh, oh God, it was more than a year ago, I think now, on the, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it the Foreign Service Act or the Foreign Services Act about Canadians fighting in foreign wars in foreign countries and that there being actually a statute in this country making that illegal, but even so, the federal government was turning a blind eye to that in the case of, well, of course, Israel has been an ongoing thing, but in Ukraine as well. Am I getting yeah, that uh, right? Uh, well, it, 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 the law hinges, uh, I haven't looked at it in a while, but as I recall, the law hinges on whether or not uh, Canadians are being recruited in Canada uh, to uh, fight uh, or to serve in a foreign military, not necessarily to wage war, but to serve in a foreign military. Uh, and I, I don't think there's any real question, if you look at the facts, not just with respect to Israel, but with respect to Ukraine, that there have been people in this country who have been engaging in activities that could easily be characterized as recruitment on Canadian soil of Canadian citizens to go and serve in the Ukrainian military in the time of war. But whether or not the law is being violated, my personal opinion is that it likely has been violated by at least some people who have been encouraging, facilitating and funding Canadian citizens going to Ukraine to fight fight alongside Ukrainian soldiers. Whether or not that is a legal violation, the fact of the matter is our government knows it's happening. Our government has done absolutely nothing to discourage it, let alone to stop it. They could easily adopt a law if the current legislation doesn't suffice, which would prevent Canadian citizens from participating in that conflict. Uh, but they've done exactly the opposite. They know that we have Canadians. In fact, there have been reports of Canadians who have been who've been killed. Uh, Canadians have been wounded fighting alongside Ukrainian soldiers on the front line. So in what sense, as I said earlier, are we not waging war against Russia just because we haven't sent uh, active members of our military uh, to actually fire at Russians on the front line? To me, that's, right. uh, you know, well, haven't without we, a difference. we may well have. Yeah, I'm operating on the assumption that the Canadian government is telling the truth, that we haven't done that. And frankly, I, I don't trust them and neither should you. But let's assume they're telling the truth. Even still, the stuff that we know for sure is happening uh, can lead you inexorably to only one conclusion, and that is Canada is at war with Russia. Well, I don't know that Canada's Canadians, if they knew the truth, would be lining up to go over there with the. In the case of the Bakhmut uh, battle, 
the life expectancy of raw recruits being in the, measured in minutes and a handful of minutes at that. Yeah. Uh, things things are not going well there. There's millions there are there's thousands of people dying on both on both sides and and tens of thousands have uh, died already. Uh, but the um, the happy jingoism continues in this country as though it, not, that these realities aren't uh, extant. The Department of National Defense and Canadian Armed Forces open public call consultations on update to Canada's defense policy to all Canadians, reads the press release I've got in front of me. This put out uh, March 9th by the ministers, uh, Anita Anand, and they're, they're essentially they're, the Canadians government is saying that though they updated uh, with a 20-year plan the defense policy in 2017 they're gonna have to do it again because uh, the situation has changed is what they're saying and they're saying because of russia and ukraine canada has to change and, and essentially this means to me that they want the liberal government and the defense infrastructure in this country want more they want more and more mm -hmm. what, what's your take on uh, minister Anand's announcement I think that this is window dressing. I think at the end of the day, the United, the Canadian government is going to do what it always does. It's going to do what its masters in Washington wanted to do. And what its masters in Washington wanted to do uh, is to increase its military spending, spend extraordinary amounts of money on enriching U.S.-based arms manufacturers and providing legitimacy to America's imperialistic wars, one of which is taking place as we speak in Ukraine. Uh, I think that's what the Canadian government is going to do and that this is nothing but a public relations exercise. Having said that, I do encourage people who are listening to actually post comments on this. And I, I might, you know, humbly suggest a couple of questions that you might ask in the course of, uh, you know, engaging in this discourse uh, with the Canadian government. One of those questions is, why is it not sufficient for the countries of NATO collectively to spend an amount of money, U.S. $1.2 trillion, which is what they're approximately currently spending collectively on their militaries, uh, that is anywhere from three to four times the collective military budget of Russia and China. Why is that a not, not enough to keep us safe? How much more do we have to spend in Russia and China to keep us safe from these alleged threats that they create? 20 times? 30 times? Seriously? We aren't spending enough? Why is it necessary for Western countries particularly the United States, but also other Western countries, including Canada, Britain, so forth, to have somewhere in the range of a thousand foreign military bases when China and Russia collectively have about 10. Why is that not enough? How big does our advantage have to be? So that's one question you should ask. And the other question I would urge people to ask is, what does Canada benefit from being in a military alliance with European states and particularly with the states of Eastern Europe? Now, let's imagine, Chris, let's imagine that, you know, the leaders of Russia and China lost their minds and decided that they were going to invade Canada. There's absolutely no reason to think that they have any intention of doing that. Um, do we really think that, uh, you know, Li Lith Lithuania and Latvia and Poland and uh, Estonia, that our being in a military alliance with these countries is going to act as some kind of a deterrence to us being invaded by countries like China and Russia? Absolutely not. And, and, and by the way, we are much less likely to come under attack uh, from either China and Russia than any of those countries, particularly, you know, the Baltic states and Poland, 
with respect to Russia. So by entering into a military alliance, this is, if you just look at the sort of simple risk-reward ratio for Canada, we are placing ourselves at enormous risk that we are going to be called upon to go to the defense of these countries, which are extraordinarily belligerent towards Russia, which are doing everything they can to draw NATO into a war with Russia, whereas we gain nothing, virtually nothing, uh, from being in a military alliance with them, because no country is going to be deterred if there were any country, and there isn't, which is interested in uh, you know, invading Canada. No country is going to be deterred from doing that because we have you know, in a military, we're in a military alliance with those states in Eastern Europe. So this is a, a completely uh, irrational decision on the part of Canadian policymakers to put Canada in a military alliance involving an obligation of mutual protection with the countries of Europe, Eastern Europe. And I think Canadians should start, should start challenging our government on explaining why that benefits our country. Well, one explanation offered is, and it has nothing to do with Canada uh, on its face. It says, uh, quote, the reason for that is to continue to be ready, resilient, and relevant, uh, three words you're going to hear a lot of, I I predict, to meet any threat in this changed global security environment. This has the sights of the Canadian military establishment and the Liberal Party go beyond this country. That that would be way too parochial. Uh, they are looking at the whole world. So we are going to take the world on our shoulders and, and uh, we'll take on the costs associated with that, as well as $38.5 billion more to modernize NORAD over the next 20 years that they've already reported. That won't be enough. When you talk about window dressing, in this release, uh, Dimitri, they throw in, well, the Canadian forces are also involved in domestic missions with COVID and forest fires and flood and, and helping people cross the street and such, no doubt. <laughs> so I, the, it seems that there's no end to the mission creep here, that uh, the, the final gate on this progression will be a, a military nation. But Chris, you know, that language you read, frankly, I don't even know what that means. Uh, you know, ready, relevant, and what was that other adjective you used uh, that they use? I mean, what does that even mean? Relevant resilient. Resilient. Yeah, resilient. Ready, resilient, and relevant. That is the tagline for this new expenditure, yeah. the DPU. And it's just empty rhetoric. It's just a, a, a vacuous cliche. What does that even mean in real terms? You know, this. I'm glad you mentioned the fact that the Canadian military is often called upon to perform civilian tasks like disaster management. Why is that? Why are we calling upon people who have been trained to kill other human beings to perform peaceful civilian functions? If we were sensible about this, what we would do is we would create a civilian corps of professionals who are exclusively devoted to dealing with domestic needs like disaster management. There's absolutely no reason why we should be calling upon the Canadian military to do that. And I think the reason why we do that is exactly so that the Canadian government can then try to persuade the public that the military actually serves a useful purpose. What they never explained to us is why we need soldiers to be performing those tasks and why we can't call upon uh, civilian members of the government or civilian members of the civil service to perform those tasks. People who have been specifically trained for those purposes and not for the purpose of waging war. Well, the the DART program, I question why it has to be a military program. 
and I'm in a back and forth on Twitter with this with a very smart person who has the answers, but I'm wondering where those answers come from. And she says, and I'll quote her, uh, I asked that very question about the military and these emergency response. And she says, well, advanced teams, military uh, equipped teams, assess if there's a need to protect members of the rescue mission. Uh, they, so they go there with their, quote, specially trained CAF assets using CAF equipment who have CAF jobs. This sounds like a pretty uh, capable uh, publicist, although that's not how she bills herself. But I, this is the answer that you get from that is that, well, we've got to protect Canadians on the ground when they're there to do good things. So the military must precede them. Well, I'm, I'm at a loss to understand what CAF equipment she's referring to. Tanks. I think the I think the F-16s? ones that make lots of noise. Yeah. Yeah. You know the ones bombs. Which CAF equipment? Why is why why can't we provide the relevant equipment to a non-military civilian corps that has been specifically trained to deal only with things like disaster management, with the domestic needs of the population? That I mean, these again, the Canadian government and the Canadian military are very adept at using fancy phrases, which at the end of the day don't mean a hill of beans. They don't mean anything. We don't even know what they mean. They just sound impressive. There's absolutely no rational reason that anybody in the Canadian government has ever articulated for assigning military personnel to perform things like dealing with floods, you know, to perform uh, dealing with blizzards, uh, you know, some kind of natural disaster other than the ones I've mentioned that afflict the population domestically. These are tasks that should be dealt with by people who are non-military personnel who have been trained specifically and exclusively for that purpose. Yeah. Well, well, Dimitri, there's uh, so much more we could get to, but I know that uh, your time is limited and so is mine. I just remind everyone, Saturday coming, that's March the 18th, Dimitri will host the webinar, The Art of Peace, Seeing the World Through the Eyes of Our Enemies. It's a special webinar. It is taking place at 12 noon Eastern Canada time, Eastern time. So you can go and find out more about it by going to dimitrilascaris.org or to Dimitri's Twitter page. What have I left off here about people getting involved, Dimitri, in our last minute? Well, I think, you know, we are desperately in need, uh, you know, Chris, of the revival of the peace movement. There was never a time, in my opinion, when it was more needed than it is today. Uh, And we've been greatly weakened by what I regard as an unprecedented tidal wave of propaganda that we've seen during the course of this conflict. People need to get out into the streets. People need to organize. People need to begin demanding a peaceful resolution of this war. We're beginning to see the signs of that. I'm very encouraged by uh, the protests that we're seeing erupt around Europe, for example. But here in Canada, we're behind the curve in that regard. And I know there are a lot of peace-loving, conscientious Canadians Uh, who want to see an end to this war, we need you to get out in the streets and do as our brothers and sisters of Europe and Europe have begun to do. Got to work for peace, and you're doing that work, and I applaud you for it. Um, Thanks a lot for coming on again, Dimitri, and I want everyone else to stay uh, stay around. I'm going to talk to Brad Wolf in the second half, and they're setting up, Brad's involved with the Merchant of Death War Crimes Tribunal, which is coming up, we're based in the United States, and they're take to task the the vendors of these weapons of destruction and uh, try to take the profit out of war profiteering. Thanks again for coming on, Dimitri. Great to talk to you, Chris. Take care. Their message always to everybody through all their advertising, all their PR, everything is, we are your friends. And it's like, no, you are not our friends. Friends are not people 
bottom line is how much profit they can make out of you. It is completely different. Guerrilla Radio, knowing who our real friends are since 1999. And welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, there was a time not so long ago, war profiteers were held to be exemplars of humanity's basest instincts, antitheses of virtue, the very worst of the worst of the evildoers. They were rightly and roundly despised. Now, though, CEOs of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics and all their lesser factotums are welcome and well-treated in the halls of power and in major TV studios alike. Today, the profiteers need never fear official opprobrium or being called to account for the bitter harvest of their dark deeds, at least not in the courts of the land. But there's another weighing of justice at hand. The Merchant of Death War Crimes Tribunal is coming soon, and it promises to hold accountable the manufacturers of the weapons that kill combatants and non-combatants alike through the testimony of witnesses to the destruction wrecked and the crimes committed against humanity with them. Brad Wolf is co-founder of the Peace Action Network of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's an affiliate of Peace Action and a partner of World Beyond War. He's a lawyer, former prosecutor, professor, community college dean, and full-time activist for peace and justice. Brad's writings are published at The Progressive, Common Dreams, Counterpunch, Antiwar.com, Consortium News, and Dappled Things, among others. He recently authored a book on former priest Philip Berrigan's collected writings, A Ministry of Risk. He's also a key organizer with the Tribunal. Welcome to the program, Brad. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here. Well, it's my pleasure, of course, to speak with you. Now, Brad, uh, though the tribunal's presentation phase is slated to begin in November, there's plenty of work to be done right now. What's the Merchant of Death War Crimes Tribunal process, and what are you guys doing at this moment? So we've been working on this actually for a year now. So it's going to be almost a two-year process by the time we hit next November and have the tribunal itself. And what we're attempting to do and when I say we, I'm working with Kathy Kelly and Nick Modern, both very well-known and longtime peace activists. And what we're attempting to do is to have a people's tribunal, a public tribunal, and try to look at war and the devastation it wreaks from the perspective of victims. And also try to see where the profit is in war, what is driving war. There have been other people's tribunals in the past. Bertrand Russell did the tribunal in 1966, where he put on the American government for atrocities in Vietnam. And in 2005, there was the World Tribunal on Iraq. There was the uh, Code Pink Tribunal on Iraq in 2017. But what what we wanted to do here was put the focus on weapons manufacturers rather than the American government, because we believe profit drives war. We believe these weapons manufacturers have tremendous influence in conducting foreign policy in the United States. They are freely walking in the halls of Congress, the White House, and the Pentagon. And where there's money to be made on death and destruction, particularly of innocence, of non-combatants, that's where we want to shine a light. And so our goal is to put a face on these ugly deeds of war, to let the American people and hopefully the world realize that many of these wars are be conducted to enrich certain people, a small majority of people, and that these folks are really not bashful about it. They uh, they hold their shareholder phone calls. They're basking in the glory of Ukraine and all the deaths there because armament sales are increasing. 
And they've planted people throughout our American government and the media in order to enhance our ability to quickly go to war unnecessarily. It's known as the revolving door. For instance, our current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, is a perfect example. He was, of course, a general in the United States military for many years. He then retires, becomes uh, a member of the board of directors at Raytheon, where he earns great money. He's now Secretary of Defense, where he directs contracts to go to Raytheon for great dollars. He will return to Raytheon once he's done at the Pentagon. And this revolving door of military figures going to weapons contractors, public office, sitting on the media as an analyst and back creates a narrative very difficult to defeat. And that narrative is a pro-war narrative. And the cost of that pro-war narrative is not just dollars that are taken from the American taxpayer, but there are lives that are cost uh, abroad, needlessly cost abroad. So our, our aim is to put these weapon manufacturers on trial. We have charged them with crimes against humanity and war crimes. These are official crimes recognized by the International Criminal Court. And though our tribunal is not a legal tribunal, it is a people's tribunal, we nevertheless are following the rules of procedure in serving them with subpoenas, serving them with contempt citations, providing them the opportunity to appear before us. And then there will be uh, a jury uh, comprised of judges in November who will listen to all the evidence we compile and they will render a verdict. Brad, now when you when you say that you're going to go after uh, the corporations and not the government, as you outlined yourself, how do you make? Is there even such a distinction in modern day America between the corporate world and the gov and the government? They seem so interconnected, so interlocked. This revolving door you mentioned is just one aspect of that. But how are these things even to be separated? It's very difficult to separate them in this day and age. You know, we, we live in corporate tyranny here in the United States. Corporations run our wars, they run our media, uh, our food, our prisons, our schools. Um, there has been a, a corporate capture of America to a large degree. It's particularly dangerous when they have held captive American foreign policy and war making policy. Um, that is to be the people's choice. That, of all things, should be up to the citizens of the United States. And to have it held by corporations and shareholders who have a profit motive to do this is particularly dangerous. So that is what we're going to try to do in a tribunal. We're going to try to make that distinction. We're going to try to remind Americans that there should be a distinction between corporations and the American government. And that if you look at Raytheon, we've indicted four weapons manufacturers as uh, representative of the entire U.S. war industry. Those four are Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and General Atomics. And if you look at the profits that these companies are making, anywhere in the order of 20 to 30 billion per year, um, and the kind of lifestyles that their CEOs are living, uh, it's going to really put a face on what is happening here. So. Last November 10th, uh, we went to Washington, D.C. to serve subpoenas on each of these four corporations. And uh, we had a great group of people with us. Uh, we tried to generate some media attention. We had some, not as much as we wanted, since the media is embedded with the corporations. But nevertheless, we served the subpoenas on them. And we just returned on Valentine's Day, February 14th of this year and filed a, uh, a citation of contempt against these corporations because they had failed to comply with the subpoena that we had provided to them earlier. And again, th these are not 
quote, legal subpoenas, but this is meant to demonstrate that the citizens of the United States are intent upon taking action. And as we increasingly publicize this with very notable figures who are part of this tribunal, Cornell West, Richard Falk, Ann Wright, Bill Quigley, Marjorie Cohn, um, there are a number of very prominent individuals who are participating. We hope all that is going to generate some publicity and some education to the American people. We're also working with colleges and universities across the country to try to have this material integrated into curricula so that students will become a part of it and become aware of the military industrial academic media complex that has a stranglehold on our political and economic systems. Well, yeah, and when you talk about the people's choice, the, the idea that there is a choice for peace is something that might come a, a, as a surprise to people who spend their days in front of Fox or MSNBC, where the choices are usually limited to which countries to destroy and, and how severely to prosecute the various wars against them. The declaration of war, though, as far as that being a, a choice of the people, that hasn't occurred in the United States in generations. I, I'm not sure when the last actual declaration declaration or, or declared war was, I, I think it might have been World War II. Is that right? It was. It was World War II. And Vietnam was a, a congressional resolution, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And uh, of course, Iraq was the AUMF, the authorization to use military force. And it's under cover of those resolutions, those congressional resolutions, not former declarations of war, but the AUMF in particular, which has generated the last 20 years of the wars of terror, these endless wars, wars of choice. And, you know, we are fighting wars right now in Syria. We're supporting wars in Somalia. We've got troops in Congo, active combat in Congo, um, and not to mention still over the horizon actions killing people in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this country is at war right now without congressional approval. It just this very vague AUMF resolution that a number of peace groups are trying to get um, re revoked, having it withdrawn. It, it keeps failing, um, but you know that it, it's really absurd that tax dollars from from every American up to a trillion dollars a year now is being spent on war making. You look at the State Department, which is our Department for Diplomacy. Their budget is about sixty-eight billion a year as opposed to a trend. It tells you where our values are as a country, and it's very disturbing. Yeah, and that's what I wonder about too, uh, Brad, when you when you talk about you know, the citizens being responsible uh, and who profits from these wars. Well, there's shareholders in within the Congress. Uh, I can't remember the figure, but I think it's like 70 plus percent of the members hold shares in these war-making corporations. They profit themselves. They don't have to live the lifestyle of a CEO, for example, but they're still doing very well, thank you, and especially in these last years. Also, these uh, companies put uh, manufacturing um, uh, in installations in all ridings, as we call them here, but in, in all jurisdictions in the United States where it becomes a local political uh, issue for people to support these war companies and by extension what they are what they make their product for it, it does they're very clever about what they what they do very evil in what they do but very clever about it for instance boeing will um have plants in all congressional districts across the country in order to 
so, uh, create jobs, but also to put pressure on congressmen in each of those districts to not vote against any weapons programs. Now, it would be more cost effective for Boeing to have everything in one place, but Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, they spread it out among congressional districts in order to put pressure on these uh, congressional representatives. Um, as you mentioned, the Congress uh, people in Congress, they own shares in these companies. Uh, they're making money off of that. The other very disturbing aspect of this is that these weapons manufacturers give direct payments to the campaigns of these congressmen and senators. So you have members of the Armed Services Committee, and this is the committee that is approving contracts for the Pentagon. And you have members receiving large campaign donations from Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. And of course, they turn around and then approve large contracts to Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and Raytheon. So uh, if that's not bribery, I don't, I don't know what is. Now, they hide behind a cover of this is for national defense. But when the United States is spending more than the next 10 countries combined on national defense, you really have to ask, how much is enough? And when you arm this country to the teeth like that, it's going to be used. Inevitably, it's going to be used to draw down the inventory so they can produce more weapons. Well, and more insidiously, they hide behind the First Amendment saying that money equals free speech. And doesn't Lockheed Martin have the same rights to free speech that, as expressed by the money that they give to government to further the political goals that they have an interest in, as well as every other corporation in America? Yeah, our, our, our lovely Supreme Court declared that corporations are people and um, have the right to free speech and, and that donating to political candidates is uh, a, a right of free speech. And therefore, Raytheon, with billions of dollars in its pocket, can give unlimited funds to my congressman and me with very limited funds, uh, can only give so much. Now, who is my congressman going to listen to? Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking with Brad Wolf. Brad's a co-founder of the Peace Action Network of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a lovely little area. It's affiliated with Peace Action and a partner of World Beyond War. Uh, we've talked to David Swanson here many times from that organization. He's a lawyer, former prosecutor, professor, community college dean, and full-time activist for peace, working for peace and justice. We're talking today about the upcoming Merchant of Death War Crimes Tribunal. Well, Brad, when you say that these companies declare themselves people, how? what are the mechanics of prosecuting these corporations? Are you to prosecute the CEO or the chief econ uh, financial officer or uh, other officers on the board of directors or the company itself? How, do, how does this prosecution work? So what we've done in the original subpoenas and indictments that we created, um, and again, these are people's subpoenas, so I just want to be sure the listeners understand that this is not happening in a court of law. This is happening in the court of public opinion. And what we've done with the subpoenas is we named the CEOs of each of these four corporations, these four representative corporations, named them, but are also indicting the corporation because under the Geneva Convention, corporations which participate in war crimes can be held liable. And so we're operating on that premise as well. So as we go after the CEOs, we recognize that CEOs change. And so it's not just about demonizing one person, it's about recognizing a system that is creating death and destruction across the globe and using our tax dollars to do it. So when we get down to Washington and we confront these companies, we say not with our dollars and not in our name. 
And that's the point that we're trying to get across to these corporations. And hopefully we can bring a, a, a light to them to, to get them to at least respond. A really interesting fact, when we went to Raytheon, both in November and this last February, they have this enormous building in Arlington, Virginia, which is just a stone's throw from the Pentagon, right? I mean, it makes it very easy for the revolving door to go back and forth. And by the way, Raytheon literally has a revolving door in its entrance, which I thought was very, <laughs> very interesting. So, so we go there, um, and it's an enormous building with a Raytheon letters at the top. It says Raytheon. You can't miss it. But when you go inside... Nobody, not security, not reception, uh, nobody will confirm or deny that Raytheon is in the building. And when you try to find out which floor the executive offices are on, they're not listed anywhere in the directory. Nobody will uh, admit that they're there. When we were there, the police were called because we were doing a nonviolent demonstration with banners and subpoenas. The police would not confirm that they were there. We said it's on the building. We know they're here. They, they would not confirm it. So when we went, that happened in November. When we went back, in February, they were waiting for us and, and, and they had the police all lined up outside. And again, there was maybe 12 of us and probably 12 police too. And we began to enter the building as we had tried to before. And they said, you cannot enter the building, nor can you stand on the sidewalks because Raytheon has now purchased the sidewalks. And when we mm -hmm. ask, how can a private organization purchase public sidewalks? They provided us with a deed that said that they had done just that. So to me and to the rest of our organization, it demonstrated a level of shame that Raytheon has about what they do. Uh, you know, they didn't want to be confronted. They don't want to be known to necessarily be inside that building. They didn't want to speak to us. Um, and I, I just wonder, what's it like to work at a company where you have to be ashamed of, of where you work? We are not a, a rabble-rousing bunch. I mean, I was dressed in a suit and tie, and we were all very, you know, organized, peaceful, and cooperative. But I, I found that very interesting that that level of shame exists at these corporations. It's tempting to uh, illustrate these the evils that these companies do from the top down, but when there's tens of thousands of everyday people working there, if, relying on their jobs to pay the rent and do all those other things, uh, it becomes a, a more of a gray area. We've seen in the last couple generations that the American economy is more and more entwined in the war making and pre preparation for war making industries. Uh, I wonder at what point it's possible to put an end to this thing without killing the body politic entirely. Yeah, it is. It, it's our number one export weapons, um, which is really un, unfortunate. Uh, I think it speaks to spiritual and moral issues that are of concern here in the United States. But what we're asking these corporations to do is not close their doors, but to participate in economic conversion. The resources that these companies have, the, the uh, engineers, the scientists, I mean, if you think of the level of ingenuity that exists in all of these companies, if they would convert to life-sustaining enterprises, whether it be green energy or, or medical care or anything else, think of the good that they can do. And all these employees don't have to lose their jobs. They can still use their degrees and their engineering and their brilliance in order to advance life rather than to destroy it. So when we went to Washington, we were not saying close the doors and all of you people who work here, particularly you know, middle level or lower level folks, you know, in the enterprise, we were not condemning them, but saying, 
have a discussion with your colleagues today about whether you can participate in some kind of organization to get the company to convert economically and produce uh, not weapons, but life-sustaining elements. Yeah, David Swanson uh, of World Without War argues very uh, convincingly ab about the economics of military spending and and how it's a very, when you look at it, the the actual return to the people, to the economy uh, is very low. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Uh, there's been all these economic studies done that um, for uh, every dollar spent or every $10 spent, you could have $10, time, $10, $10 spent on the military, you would have 10 times more jobs created if it were spent on non-military items. Um, spending on military is a very ineffective way to create jobs. And if the government is trying to create a jobs program, doing it through the military is a tremendous waste of our tax dollars, not to mention the morality of killing so many innocents abroad. and. Uh, that's part of the crux of our case is this knowingly killing innocents abroad. And if the weapons manufacturers try to say, well, we didn't know innocents were going to be killed, all you have to do is pick up a paper uh, to see the number. I, I, I just recently saw that in World War I, 10% of the casualties killed were civilians. In World War II, 40% of the casualties were civilians. In Vietnam, it rose to 70% of the casualties were civilians. And in the Iraq war, it was 90% of the casualties were civilians. So what these wars are doing are, are, are killing civilians. These companies know it. They can't hide behind this false uh, cloud of saying, we think it's legitimate warfare or anything of that kind, if there is such a thing as legitimate warfare. Well, isn't this though getting back to the NRA argument that it's not guns that kill people, right. it's people. And so they say, yeah, of course we built this uh, weapons system, but you know, we didn't pull the trigger. It's interesting. I, I interviewed Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson as part of the tribunal process, and he was the chief of staff for Colin Powell. And I asked him about his experience dealing with weapons manufacturers. And he says that they are in the room of the Pentagon and Congress. Um, and they create an atmosphere through their influence to uh, have the United States engage in war in particular places. They are not innocent bystanders. They are not simply responding to contracts uh, issued by the Pentagon. They are actually influencing war-making policy. And they're doing so by having such power, such monetary power over the institutions that are supposed to be free from that type of thing. The, the choice to go to war is the most serious choice any country can make, and it is a choice in a democracy that should be shared by the people. Uh, in this country, it is not. Well, that's a fascinating point that they, they are in the room, and it's kind of like Ford and General Motors being in the at the Department of Transportation uh, saying, well, I think you should build more roads because more roads would be great, you know, and so right. they are, they, they, they're not waiting for the market, they're driving the market. Exactly. That's exactly what they do. And that's a, that's a great analogy. It's exactly well, what they do. Well, Brad, we're in a moment of escalation right now. Obviously, what's going on in Ukraine, uh, that is involving Canada and all the NATO countries, too. Uh, our government, uh, we I use the term ironically, is now pushing very hard for an increase in uh, uh, the military budgets here, as you see that you're well used to in the United States. That's happening across all the NATO countries. My previous guest, Dmitry Laskaris, is going to Russia as an envoy of peace, a citizen's initiative. It's certainly nothing. The, the, our government won't speak to Russia. 
we discussed that it seems that we in Canada are at war with Russia right now in a de facto sense. It, we're, it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck right now, but there's no declaration here or officially no Canadian soldiers on the ground officially. Uh, and the same is true of the United States. And now there's talk that this is just the warm up for a greater conflagration with China. Uh, what about the situation we're in right now? as we seem to be hurtling towards uh, a next global confrontation. I, I think that's a, a very shrewd analysis. Um, this is a proxy war between the United States and Russia right now, Ukraine I'm referring to. And without a doubt, um, we are making matters much worse. The, uh, we've, we've, a lot of people have come under the false belief that these uh, weapons manufacturers are new gods, are idols. I hear all people always saying, thank God for the weapons manufacturers in Ukraine, because without it, they would not be able to defend themselves against Russia, when in fact, I think arming many of these former Warsaw Pact countries uh, that are now NATO countries with weapons are what have led to this kind of thing, or at least played a key role in provoking the conflict in Ukraine. And the idea that Ukraine is just a, an experimental battlefield to test out United States weapons for a greater war with China is a very real possibility. This was done in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s when Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union used Spain as a testing ground for their weapons prior to World War II. And there is a lot of talk that that's what's being done in Ukraine right now. And uh, as they say here in America, America is willing to fight until the last Ukrainian uh, in this war. Uh, we're not exposing ourselves greatly, at least not yet, but we are financially exposing ourselves. But the Ukrainians and the Russians are ter taking terrible losses. Um, and it's, you know, they're probably, they're, again, the weapons manufacturers are showing record profits, right? Yeah. Uh, fossil fuel companies and, re and weapons manufacturers are probably two of the only sectors of the market that are doing well right now. And that's that's very disturbing. Well, and those members of the NATO countries, uh, the Natonians, I'll, I'll call them, uh, including Canada, they should bear uh, special attention to that because I think America will be willing to fight the Russians and the Chinese to the last Canadian as well. Uh, we're fast out, out of time, Brad, but reiterate, please, the when and where's of the uh, tribunal and how people who are interested can get involved and find you guys. It's the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal. And uh, if you go to www.merchantsofdeath.org, all of our information is there, um, exactly who is uh, involved, how people can get involved. We have a number of videos um, that we've recorded already that are there. If people want to do things like print a subpoena to subpoena their congressional representative or their government official or their bank president, they can print a subpoena and deliver it to them in an action, a protest action. And a lot of people are doing that. And if you go to that website, you will be kept abreast of everything that we are doing. The tribunal itself will be filmed and premiered in November over a series of weeks. We're starting it November 10th, 2023, and it will be available. Uh, we hope to show it across the globe through YouTube and Facebook and then have the tribunal watching these pre-recorded testimonies of victims and military analysts proving our case, and then they will render a verdict. But again, it's www.merchantsofdeath.org. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Brad, for coming on today and, and telling us uh, a little bit about that. Eh? Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Really appreciate it.
Well, it's my great pleasure. And thanks too to Dimitri Lascaris. And remember, his webinar is the 18th coming. That's Saturday, March 18th at 12 noon. Go to Dimitri's website, dimitrilascaris.org. You can find out more information about that there. Thanks again, Brad. Okay, thank you. You have a great day. When nothing is as it's presented. It's a bit like discovering that your favorite uncle has um, taken you for walks in the park, other that he's, a, he's really a serial abuser. You need a different source. Guerrilla Radio, a century of news every Thursday and Saturday.